This is John Jackson, director of the Billy Joel Archive, and you're listening to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Fernino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. To paraphrase another famous rock band, Billy Joel's Vinyl Collection Volume 2 goes to 11. The box set treats fans to 21 years of classic songs with just shy of a dozen records. That's including an album never released on vinyl before and a long-awaited expanded version of a fan favorite. Released November 3, 2023, the collection includes every studio album from Glass Houses in 1980 through 2001's Fantasies and Delusions marking the first time Billy's classical album has ever been released on vinyl. For many listeners, it's the first time they'll get copies of Stormfront and River of Dreams on wax as well. Both those albums came out when CDs and cassettes had replaced records as the primary medium. The set also includes a long-awaited fan favorite, 1982's Live from Long Island, available not only for the first time on vinyl, but also for the first time with a full track listing. To celebrate this monumental release, we sat down with art director Edward O'Dowd and Billy Joel archivist John Jackson to get the story behind restoring the original artwork, creating new visuals, enhancing and expanding the live release, and much more. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's The Vinyl Collection, Volume 2. All right, friends, November 3rd is here. The Vinyl Collection Volume 2 is here, and we are so excited to finally dig in and talk about this amazing box set. It's got such a different feel, in a way, from Volume 1. The template is is pretty much the same to great effect, but it is just such a different collection of music, um, and that's that spans such a different era uh, that it's it's really exciting to think of these albums uh, as a package. I agree. I think the 70s era, Billy, those albums felt like a build and growing into something. While volume two, as we're in the 80s into the 90s, it's more pivots between albums. It was the time where every album sounded different. Volume one, there's almost a narrative being in California, being in New York, what the albums sound like, how the song, how the, the sound evolved. And by the 80s, it was he was just throwing off a different style every album. And, you know, that's what really makes it fascinating is when you go from the most stripped down rock and roll, which would be Glass Houses, to what's really the polar opposite is is Fantasies and Delusions, which is just chamber music. And, of course, the fact that we've never gotten Fantasies and Delusions on record before. And I've never held in my hand Stormfront or River of Dreams on vinyl. I know you have. Those two albums are exciting, certainly, because Stormfront was the tail end of the mass vinyl production for Columbia in the U.S., so that got a vinyl release. I still have my original from 89, plus a few additional reissues, including the Walmart-colored vinyl from a year or so ago. And River of Dreams, aside from a Friday Music reissue a few years back, was not originally released in America in the early 90s when this came out. Yeah, so for many folks who weren't 
collectors, they really didn't have much of an opportunity to buy that record. This, of course, all feels like the opening act to the live installment on this set, which is finally live from Long Island, the full concert with banter. Oh, Lord, the banter. People go to Grateful Dead Boots for the Jerry solos. We go to uh, Billy Joel Boots for the banter half the time. (laughs) Right. Well, and I tell you what, the original video release and Laserdisc release from 83, you know, it was truncated down to 80 minutes from about a two hour show. On top of several missing songs, there's a lot of missing banter. And, you know, the first time hearing this, I was just floored between even, you know, right away between Angry Young Man and Piano Man, there is a missing uh, minute and a half or so of banter that was cut from the video release. So hearing these components and, you know, finally hearing the full intro to my life that got cut and all these other little things that we got so used to the version that has existed for the last 30 years, hearing the full expanded show, um, largely, you know, this is about an hour and 50 minutes. So maybe there's a little bit trimmed out, but far more expanded than ever before. It's a whole new experience for me. And as we all know, Billy's want to kind of tell the same stories a couple of times, maybe tell the same jokes a bunch of times. This is pretty much all new. We've never heard him really come out with these remarks and, and jokes anywhere else. And, you know, having seen him at uh, Nassau Coliseum, he just really just jokes with the crowd. He almost has a conversation with everybody in there um, in, in a way I've, I've never seen him do in other venues. And especially not at big venues like this. You know, this is something that was more apt to like the club shows where he's just riffing with, you know, people just off stage and the band, you know, adding this kind of inside commentary uh, makes it feel small for such a big show. He makes the Coliseum very intimate. But hey, enough of our yakking. We got other people that know a whole lot more about this than we do. And we're going to cut to some conversations with them. So first, uh, returning to the podcast is John Jackson. Billy Joel's archivist. John had a huge role in the formation of the box set. You know, we liken his role to kind of a quarterback. He's kind of producing the process and putting it together, making sure everything moves along through every step of the way, along with several others. But he is one of the people that is instrumental in just pushing the process forward. And also back in the saddle for the box set and also on the podcast is Edward O'Dowd, the art director for the box sets, the person behind the Billy Joel uh, Madison Square Garden residency logo, the Stranger expanded edition. The Piano Man Legacy edition. He did the uh, Matter Trust, A Bridge to Russia, that box set. Complete Albums Collection CD set from 2011. That was his as well. So for the past 15 years or so, Edward has been a regular go-to in the Billy Joel camp for a lot of the great design work. We're going to let them talk you through this. We're going to start off with John, uh, given a lot of the background on putting this together. Then you're going to get the audio version of our unboxing, where we sat down with Edward O'Dowd, and he literally walked us through different pages of the booklet, uh, gave us some insights onto recreating the, uh, the album art, the record labels, everything. You can go to our YouTube page and you can get the video so you'll see exactly what we're talking about. And we're going to cut it a little differently here um, since this is just an audio medium. But uh, I think you're going to get the idea. Sometime next year, we're going to go through Live from Long Island, which is going to be exciting for us because one of the first episodes we did, back when we built off way more than we could chew, <laughs> we, we just came crashing out of the gate in like episode three and was like, let's cover Live from Long Island. Right, And there we were all stiff and picking our noses and reading off index cards pretty much. Uh, (laughs) And, uh, you know, we go back and listen to it like we've gotten so much better. So uh, we're going to get to to revisit that release with the expanded edition. Uh, I I don't know, a couple months, whenever we feel like it. We're busy people. We've got stuff to do, man. 
but uh but we got that coming too so all right let's do it man let's uh let's jump into this with john jackson As far as the the new vinyl box set, what was your role in putting this package together? My role in it really was um, sort of quarterbacking it. You know, there were a lot of people that uh, are much better than me at various aspects of it that did amazing, amazing work. Just sort of had the pleasure of uh, seeing the whole thing through from start to finish and, you know, working with the team that does the art layouts and the graphics and obviously the audio and the sound and the lacquer cutting and the test presses and the all of that stuff. And then the most exciting bit for me anyway was uh, working with Brian Ruggles and Jay Vacari on the new Live from Long Island mix, which we did from scratch, you know, from the original multi-tracks. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I hope we've come up with something that's uh, really, really nice for everybody. We're going to get into Life from Long Island pretty deeply in a minute. Still thinking about the box set in general. This is the first time, for instance, we're going to hear Fantasies and Delusions on vinyl. So having heard it, do you feel like it hits differently at all? Or is there like a different impact hearing it on vinyl versus CD or streaming? I think for sure there is, yeah. I think that there was a, always a sort of um, a bit of a coldness to the record uh, when it was presented on CD. Um, you know, that record is very intimate and you know obviously just a solo piano playing this music the original version to me just felt a little digital and you know the the master of it turns out it actually is a digital master um it's on a dsd format which for the audio files in the crowd is the one bit um sort of ultra high resolution it gets none higher than dsd which is what the record was mixed to we pulled that up got that file from uh, the archives at Sony and cut the lacquers uh, from that for the record. So to me, it just sounds much warmer spread over four sides. It actually mm. becomes much more of a listenable journey, I think, um, where you kind of have to pause and listen to the music uh, in chunks rather than just one section, almost like a symphony or uh, the various opi that Billy had uh intended the record to be. I think it works a lot better. I think it's really neat to see it in the 12 by 12 format, you know, and just having something sort of new and fresh and unique to offer fans in the box set, I think is really special. Yeah. And I think that's one that a lot of people didn't see coming in the canon of Billy's catalog. It's one that just by nature of what it is, is overlooked. So I think it was a nice surprise to see this one, you know, resurfacing again and giving people a different way to experience it. Like you put I mean, we, you know, we had to push for it a little bit. It is a Billy record and it's not a Billy record because he's not playing on it. But uh, when you trace the career, you can't not include it. And, you know, like I said, it was it was a new format. And, you know, it's going to I think it's going to remind people of what he was up to uh, yeah. at that period, you know, in between Greatest Hits 3 and, you know, some of the other stuff that he did, you know, earlier in the 21st century. So it's it's I think it's a really great document of that time. Yeah, and it shows where his head was at as a songwriter, certainly. So it is really fascinating um, and definitely part of the journey. So it, it makes sense for, for me as far as I can tell. You'd see in interviews where he said, well, I'm done writing pop music and I'm writing all these pieces of classical music and everything. And then you go, well, okay, yeah, sure, where are they? And he goes, well, here they are. 
I'm just not <laughs> playing them. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, you know, it's funny, too, because I think Michael pointed out on the Russia doc, there's a bit of, uh, was it Nunley's Carousel? Mm-hmm. That you can kind of hear a little bit of that music even even that far back. So, Yeah, I think it's the kind of thing where it was always sort of bubbling, you know, in the background, but he had um, other other fish to fry you know, with uh, with sort of cranking out the records and doing the tours and stuff. So it was nice to see the labor of love kind of finally get done. When we were covering River of Dreams a while back, we were going through some interviews during that mid-90s era, and he was talking about a another pop record at that point. He, mm-hmm. he was discussing it, talking about, you know, what's next, and obviously it never materialized. And, you know, there was always that bit of a question mark as why. And I think part of it might have just been... I'm ready to be done with this for a while. Yeah, famous last words, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's up there with like all apologies at the end of in utero. Like you couldn't have <laughs> morbidly, but you couldn't have planned it better. <laughs> sure. Or yeah. in uh, the end by the Beatles, right? Right. Oh, yeah. Right. You forget that because Let It Be was recorded first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the last time we spoke, actually, you had talked about how part of your job as an archivist is also finding the narrative and, and sort of fleshing out the narrative of Billy's career. When you're faced with these box sets, I'm curious, you know, where does that establishing or discovering the narrative come into play, especially, you know, when you get the opportunity to make a, a, a retrospective, essentially, of two decades or so of his music? The narrative, when it comes to sort of a linear, complete collection i think is is a bit less um difficult you know than uh than when you're sort of drilling into one period and trying to find you know what the story was of a you know year or two years of of, of an artist's career and not just billy you know and any artist that you would work on such a project for you know to me the the sort of most controversial thing that we did was leapfrogging songs in the attic so it's actually in the first box which to me made perfect sense, but obviously mm-hmm. it breaks the chronology slightly. But really, it was that celebration of the '70s catalog and trying to get people reinterested in it. That yes, it was made and came out after Glass Houses, but it really sort of to me caps more the uh, the '70s than than Glass Houses did. So it'd be odd to start the second box with a live album of stuff from the first box, you know, so we sort of switched those two in order and, uh, and left that as sort of the capper of the seventies. And then this is the eighties, nineties. Yeah. Certainly made a lot of sense to me as soon as I saw it, like, Oh, no, obviously because songs was that retrospective, but it didn't even occur to me that, yeah, you would then have to start the new box with, with the live album and not class houses. (laughs) See these, you had to think about these things, you know, as you're going, well, okay, it's, sort of Where's this number in this box and this number in the other and kind of have to make it affordable for people and making it into three boxes doesn't really make a sense. So you sort of have to do a little horse trading to uh, to <laughs> make it fit together. Glass Houses does work perfectly as the beginning to this because it really does usher in the 80s, Billy, in a way, even though, you know, tail end of 79, but it, re- it really, it feels so much more different than... 52nd Street, The Stranger, and everything before it, it feels like a fresh beginning to this set as opposed to tugging it at the back of the first one. Yeah. And it also, you know, it, it sort of switches his, the sound really, you know, from a, a sax band or more R&B jazz style band to clearly a guitar band, adding David Brown to the mix, sort of Rich T falling to the wayside soon after, 
really kind of made it into a more of a rock and roll machine. And then he gets into coming out from behind the piano and he's out in front of the stage and he's doing those type of songs. So yeah, really it's, it's a big revolution with just that little change of like, okay, now the solos are going to be guitar instead of sax, you know? So I think that that was a big, uh, a big turning point. What kind of feedback did you get for uh, for the first box, and and how did that affect um you know the planning or the the design or the you know, any parts of the uh, of the second box set? The biggest piece of feedback we had was when is volume two coming, you know, because <laughs> uh, despite all those records being so great, um you know people did buy millions and millions of copies of them, so uh you know it was a lot of stuff like oh thank you for making this great box and we had great american music hall in there so you know thank you for that but you know the 90s like we said you know river of dreams came out on vinyl but barely in 93 fantasies and illusions never you know stormfront was really in the cd era Uh, that was really the time when people were going i don't really want vinyl anymore it's either cassette for my car or cd for home so really it's most of that set or half of that set was you know, going to be new to people's vinyl collection. You know, we wanted to make sure that they were all done correctly and done to the standards of the first box, which we did. You know, Ted Jensen at Sterling Sound uh, was the quarterback of all of that stuff, who's mastered Billy's records for 45 years or something like that. So mm-hmm. um, his team down there, Joe, who actually cut the lacquers is amazing. They were really careful to use the original tapes. We had them sent down to Nashville, which is where Sterling Sound is. And it was sort of this uh, carried in a briefcase that's handcuffed <laughs> to you. One of our A&R guys down in, or one of Sony's A&R guys down in Nashville really helped out by accepting the tapes, walking them to Sterling, walking them back, setting them back to Iron Mountain. So that was fantastic that we were able to actually use all the original stuff, do it properly. That's what it's supposed to sound like. So really it's um, a completion of that journey to just get everything right. You know, and that's sort of like, okay, check that. Okay, great. (laughs) Now we can move on to something else. Did you run into any difficulty with obtaining any of the audio masters? Yeah, no, it's very easy. Yeah, Columbia Records, you know, is was meticulously uh, good at keeping you know records and maintaining where stuff is and what the masters were and all of that stuff. So that that really wasn't a problem at all. Mm -hmm. It was surprising though, like you know, the bridge. I think was finished on a digital tape so that's actually a digital early digital master you know in the same way that like the river by bruce springsteen is an early digital master digital tape machines you know that would do multi-track digital tape because they thought that was the future so you know it's it's a mixture they would go to different studios that had different kinds of tape machines and then that would dictate how you finished the record like the fantasies and delusions was done you know in a concert hall so they were using more of a um, mobile type rig to record that record and then mix it. Yeah, yeah. When you're not recording a band, you don't you don't need the the biggest rig in the world. So, you know, a few good mics, input some good room mics, and you're you're good to go. This is all stuff you've obviously heard, you know, a million times, and a lot of it we've heard a whole bunch. But hearing it back, you know, in the box and and seeing it all in this set with Live from Long Island and Fantasies and Delusions, um, and the booklet. What are the high points for you as a fan, as a listener? What are your favorite moments from the box set? You can never, ever, ever beat the first time you ever heard an artist, right? Like your entry point into that artist's catalog. And for me, that was, you know, my parents' cassette of Innocent Man. 
in the car in, you know, 1984 or whatever, going on vacation. Yeah. So to me, listening to that album in its entirety and not just cherry picking the singles out of it, um, but hearing that record in its entirety, like takes you back to, you know, being in the backseat of your parents' car, listening to the music with your family. And, you know, it just becomes its own piece of nostalgia. Oddly enough, for a record that was <laughs> intentionally done as a nostalgic right. thing, it's the weirdest thing with vinyl because, you know, the thing that I loved about CDs forever was that you could just put it on and leave it on. And it was mm. an hour and 20 minutes or whatever yeah. of, of music. But um, I've come to remember that there is something to the 18 or 20 minutes on a side of a vinyl and the mm. way that that's programmed and the story that that tells makes it a different experience and taking those hit songs again that you've heard a hundred zillion times and really putting them back into well no they were supposed to go into this song and this song and this song and you right. might not know the song right. laura or whatever sure. but it makes sense in that way and that's sort of the way that the artist wanted you to hear it and this story billy's told a hundred times is he doesn't want you to just hear the hits right. you know it's like you got to hear the records as they were intended yeah. And of course, you know, lots of artists say that, but when you actually list, sit down and listen to it that way, I think that you go, oh, well, I know, now I know what he's talking about now. Yeah. So to me, that's the vinyl box sitting there and going, okay, I have to experience these in 18 minute chunks in the way that they were originally made to be done. Right. It's a whole different way of listening to it. And it's not streaming and it's not downloads and it's not greatest hits and it's not whatever. So- not even the album as a CD sometimes is a different experience than as a two-sided piece yeah. of vinyl. You're going to flip the record on at the end of Shameless, and then you're going to get that sort of restart the Stormfront with the title track, where it just kind of picks up again. Exactly. Essentially, yeah. Exactly. And, th and those were decisions that were made for that reason. Yeah. When you're not getting hit with it, it's it doesn't feel mm -hmm. the same. Right. That was another one. I guess Stormfront, that song came out a little bit after, and I was into other kinds sure. of music at yeah. the time. You know, to listen to that record all the way through is was kind of eye-opening. I'm like, oh, man, so all these songs are yeah. awesome. Yeah. Obviously, you know, you know Down Easter and We Can Suck the Fire and, you know. But again, it's like putting them into the context. Yeah. Oh, my God, amazing. Yeah. One thing that I, I've always been fascinated with is artwork. Is that a bit of a different story when it comes to restoring and recreating this artwork? Or is that all pretty well archived with Sony as well? I've gone through this with a bunch of the different labels at this point but it's kind of a similar story and generally the picture that's used for an album cover whether yeah. it's a color picture or a black and white negative it usually works with a color picture but that particular slide or chrome or whatever it is would generally get so beat up in the process of making the album cover and putting type on it and you know like literally the, when they would physically make those things that like the one had generally like either got discarded or somebody took it home or I, I don't even know what. So getting the original, original picture from the record that you're looking for is sometimes a challenge. So, you know, you, uh, you'll find outtakes that are very similar and, you know, the person's head will be slightly different or down or whatever. And you're like, wow, well, you just don't have the <laughs> one from that, you know, for a long time. In like the late 90s and early 2000s, when you know digital scanning and printing didn't really match up, and so scans weren't as good as you could print. 
uh-huh. your eventual print from like scanning a 12 by 12 album cover, a lot of times it looked like crap. And there was a lot of even CD reissues where like the album cover would just look weird, you know, it looked like it had titles in it or something. Long way of saying the process of archival scanning of 12-inch records is so good now. You really just need an original, original copy and you can get to a giant, huge, you know, gigabytes of size scan of something and then it's retouched. 12 by 12, it'll look good. Yeah. Yeah. It's immaculately retouched and a lot of times the type, you know, the copy will be reset. And again, you know, fonts are now light years where they were 10, 20 years ago. So you can match anything perfectly now. And so it's really like the artwork is in a whole other level than really it, it, it's ever been. And I would say since since the CD box, you know, the mm-hmm. 20 whatever CD box we did. 2011. Yeah. 2011. You know, we've really concentrated on having amazing art files for all of them. And it's, you know, um, our friend Edward O'Dowd, who does all of that along with the with the great folks at Sony. You know, the rest of it is, you know, the book is amazing that's in this box. I don't say that lightly, but it's, uh, you know, a lot of stuff from your guys' collections. Um, shout out to <laughs> you two and all of the other collectors out there that provide wonderful scans of things for us. But, you know, it really tells a story through ephemera and clippings from articles and stuff like that. And it all sort of puzzles together into a really neat experience of, um, of the time. Sony's got a very, very, very rich archive of photography and all mm-hmm. the um, album sessions and you know live yeah. stuff and things from gigs and an embarrassment of riches of how much stuff there is um, mm-hmm. to work from. You know, there are holes. There's definitely holes yeah. that we have to you know go out and find other photographers that it covered. You know, like the Glass Houses tour, for instance, with the okay. red jacket and the yellow jacket is. They don't have any of that stuff. So we have to go out and get, you know, Richie Aaron shots or mm-hmm. other people that would have covered him. One that I was fascinated by was the 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 different nylon curtain shots at his house where he, he goes from bearded to not bearded. I think there might be yeah. two different sessions as well. But one almost looks like it might be the same day, but he just shaved. Yeah, that's it's on my list of you know to ever ask questions like that. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's all that same photo shoot, the Benno Friedman photo shoot. Yeah, he's in the he's in the backyard or he's by the boats and you know he's in the lawn chair and he's in the red shirt and he's in the white shirt. Yeah, and then literally he's got that huge sort of majestic beard that you know from the back of the album cover, and then literally the next frame he's in the same shirt in the same position but completely clean shaven. And you're like, okay. did he just go, hold on a sec. I got yeah. an idea. <laughs> right. Like, what was that discussion there? <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm going to lose this thing. Who suggested yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've had a chance to look through the booklet as well. On top of the great essay and, you know, Billy's thoughts on each record visually, it really does, you know, take you through studio, stage, publicity, and commercial. It really encompasses you know, so much from those different eras. I think so too. That's all Edward and uh, our other friend Gretchen Brennison at Sony mm-hmm. who was meticulous uh, for stuff like that. So shout outs to them. Yeah, I'm super grateful they've involved me and I would get a few random texts from Edward just be like, am I crazy or was was this this? I'm like, 
yep, you're, you know, you're, you're on, you're right on with that. He's like, okay, so this <laughs> was a matte finish on glass houses originally. Yep. Okay. And those are the, the kinds of details that we're looking to get right, you know, cause it's, mm-hmm. we're not going to do this again. You know, bespoke physical packaging is sort of had its heyday, you know, now mm-hmm. there are certain people who are interested in it still. And of course those people should be served, yeah. but, uh, that just means you need to get it right. There's no like do overs anymore. <laughs> It's hard to do it with so many moving parts in, in these, you know, and so many folks involved that it's, it's a lot of, a lot of little decisions that go into making a really robust package like this. Yeah. We even had, we had several conversations and debates of, cause there was never a, uh, an LP label for fantasies and delusions. So, well, what, mm. what does that LP label look like? I won, of course, because it was, uh, we looked at the seventies labels for to Columbia Masterworks had yeah okay because it was yep. right. sort of also a Masterworks title and they like used the gray a, with yellow maybe gray. right yeah or like gray with yeah. slightly orangey yellow around mm-hmm. that was uh you know obviously a, just a take off of the Columbia one that was red with the yellow going around yeah but it was that gray with the sort of orangey yellow so we sort of did that as kind of a nod to the classical yeah. roots of Columbia Records which was nice. And River of Dreams, obviously, there wasn't a U.S. pressing, but it follows what Sony's standard was for records back then, which is like the, exactly. the front of the front of the box there. Yep, which was you know very few artists were getting vinyl pressings at that point. Like you had to be, I don't even know who you know. I, I know that there's a, like a early maybe. Jeff Buckley Grace yeah. records that were on vinyl in the U.S. Mariah Carey, I think, there was a lot of R and B artists. But yeah. yeah, Billy, that that one only came out in um, in Europe. Well, I was going to say, so coming back around to recordings that were never on vinyl, of course, the big one here is Live from Long Island. I think we've eaten our vegetables. It's time to get into the into <laughs> the fun stuff here. <laughs> this is one a lot of people have been clamoring for for a long time. But, you know, for the first box set, you guys made the decision to go with an unreleased record. So what was the decision like this time? Go with another unreleased record or give people Live from Long Island in the box? The first box, it wasn't a decision to go with an unreleased live album. What happened there was originally wanted to do, you know, what we called legacy editions, sort of two CD sets of each of Billy's records. So we did The Stranger, obviously, which had the Carnegie Hall concert and uh, The Piano Man, which had the WMMR concert. You know, it was uh, Jeff Shock's sort of vision to go, oh, well, okay, what are the live shows that go with each of the other records? And we had several of them kind of earmarked, um, you know, Wembley 84 for the Innocent Man tour, for instance. And Great American Music Hall was something that was, for whatever reason, heavily recorded by Columbia. You know, if you're going through the sort of tape inventory, there's a a lot of multi-track tape on that show, those shows. That was sort of like, okay, let's get the next one cooking. That'll be Street Life Serenade. Here's mm-hmm. the live show that would go with that, um, of that band still playing and out doing those songs, plus, you know, Piano Man songs, plus songs to be on turnstiles, you know. Um, so it was just a really cool window into that period. And, uh, you know, for whatever reason, we just pivoted to something else. I think it was the Russia project, mm-hmm. but um, we pivoted yeah. to something else that record was mixed it was just sort of then it goes okay well let's just put it to the side for a second so uh it was revived as wouldn't it be cool as an added bonus to the the run of records that uh it's a part of 
And so, you know, that ended up being where it lived. And again, getting someone to pay $250, $300 for a box set, you want to give them something that, you know, they don't already have. And yeah. again, that first box was chock full of records mm-hmm. that sold a lot of copies on vinyl. So then we're talking about volume two, you know, we, we already had some great concerts uh, that have never been on vinyl, including Russia, you know, the expanded Russia that we did in 2014. You know, we just started saying, well, what about this? Or what about this? Or what about this? And then we finally stumbled on um, Live from Long Island because initially we thought the box was going to come out in 22. So it would have been the 40th anniversary uh, around Christmas of that show. Instead, we get the 40th anniversary kind of of the HBO broadcast of that show <laughs> right in 83 so what we decided to do you know after you know Billy said it was okay Brian and uh Jay Vacari who they worked together a lot on, uh, on uh, live mixing projects we basically got the multi-track for the whole show transferred yeah. it was Brian's idea Brian is in charge of all things audio of course and he said don't look at the video. Pretend this is a brand new thing that I'm giving you to mix, please. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what Jay did. And it's uh, pretty astounding, actually. What What's fascinating about that, too, is the instruction of not referencing the original at all. My fear always as a fan is when you take something that old and that well-known to a lot of people, when you revisit something, you know, 40 years later, mixing techniques have changed mixing styles have changed there's been some i've seen from artists over the years where the soul of the original gets sucked out due to time mm-hmm. this didn't mm-hmm. happen and be, well because it was mixed for tv broadcast you know it would have been mixed to mono originally uh because tv was only mono until the very late 80s really um on a wide scale and the home video i think was stereo and it was first called, it wasn't even called Live from Long Island. It was originally known as A Television First. You know, that's why the title sounds very cemented in that time. I'm glad they ultimately went with what they did. It's also ignoring Billy Joel tonight, as if that never happened. This is true. <laughs> Hello, Time Life. Yeah, that's... Yeah, there's even, he got like awards for it, like Cable oh. Ace Awards. And it was called like, for the first oh, time wow. on TV, that's 1983. Funny. So it probably didn't get this title, but till it hit like retail, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now that I think about it, I think there may be an article or two that mentions what you just said yeah. first time on TV. Yeah, see, that's the thing. Like this, the Good Night Saigon music video obviously took that footage and yeah. then cut in the you know yeah. the other footage into it. But then where did they? Where's the full? Where's the full? Yeah, track, yeah. You know, yeah. I, we'll find it. I, but. <laughs> As of October 3rd at 1210 a.m. I don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's it's always possible. So, uh, you know, hopefully people really are really latch on to the what we have so far. It sounds exciting it, hearing something that you're so familiar with, but it feels so brand new at the same time. Yeah. What we wanted was to represent the whole show as it actually happened. That was the goal was to get all 22 songs mm-hmm. onto a brand new live album. Yeah, we, we've talked a couple of times, just, you know, when we go back and we listen to, you know, bootlegs and, and concerts uh, versus the releases. And we, you know, we talk about why they resequence things. And sometimes it's not as fun if you're not in this, you know, if you're not in the arena, you know, hearing that like party block of songs at the end, you know, just sitting in your house. It's not the same. And, you know, the Yankee Stadium obviously was always resequenced. Was there ever a concern that like we're going to put out the 
the concert as is, and it's just not going to translate the way people want it to because we're not going to mess with the sequencing or was it one where once you heard it, you knew it was good to go? I mean, you know, usually things get tweaked for sequence because, you know, you're looking to promote something. I mean, you know, Yankee Stadium was tweaked in the capture uh, and in the mm-hmm. sequence to promote Stormfront. You know, it was a giant promotional vehicle for Stormfront. So that's why a lot of the non-Stormfront stuff was cut mm-hmm. out of the filming even at the beginning. Yeah. And then it gets edited to, you know, highlight all of those great new songs. In this case, you know, I, I couldn't see doing it anyway than mm-hmm. the originally put the show on. Magically, of course, yeah. it works because <laughs> it was a great show. It's so great to hear it fresh and not, you know, because the other thing that people do when they mix live video concerts is sort of, Mm -hmm. they want it to match what you're looking at. So a lot of times, like if you're pushing in on, let's say Mark and he's playing the saxophone, you'll Mm -hmm. sort of boost that a little bit so that, you know, it's sort of your eyes are, are matching what your ears are hearing. Oh, sure. Or if it pans to the crowd, they'll crank the crowd up and you know, it's like, mm. it's sort of mixed, mixed to picture, they call it. Doing that as a live album doesn't, n- almost never works because you you have these like weird bursts of crowd or like suddenly instruments are just louder for no reason if you're not looking at them. Looking at it as just, let's make kick-ass live album that's yeah. celebrating this, you know, legendary show as if it's never happened before was, was really a, a fun challenge to go through. And and all the chatter, like the chatter between the songs is like golden, you know, I mean, him saying we're getting filmed and, you know, yeah, uh, talking about different things. It's just, that's just an amazing sort of insight into that mm-hmm. particular show. And for me, knowing the, the original cut so well, I think the first, I think it's between Angry Young Man and Piano Man. That's the sequence on the video as well. But there's about a minute and 40 seconds of banter that's back. Mm-hmm. That obviously was cut for for time and making things a little tighter for that release that it's it was wild to hear it for the first time because you, you know you're really getting a feel for what was happening and it it's gonna take me a minute to get used to hearing the full breath of what was going on in between some of these songs. It's a great, great show, and the band is unbelievable, and you know Billy is fantastic it's just it's amazing. I just checked sixteen <laughs> on the VHS. <laughs> Oh, it is 16. Uh, 16 so then the- what was the laser disc? There's the laser disc had was the laser disc like 18? So the laser disc in America was also 16 and there was a laser disc in in Japan which may have included until the night and maybe Saigon. Yeah, yeah, both of these have VHS and beta both have and the, the laser disc. <laughs> you got the beta? <laughs> I do. <laughs> wow. The old beta disc or beta. If it exists, Michael has it. If it was released commercially, he's got a copy <laughs> of it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't even need to collect anything. <laughs> well, you know, when when this project started, I got a super secret call from Edward. He's like, I can't say why, but do you have anything from this? <laughs> when, I mean, I knew. I could tell. He's like, can you scan me the best quality version of the front picture possible? I said, well, I've got a laser disc. He's like, perfect. So I think that's what he actually might have <laughs> used for the new one. <laughs> and I, yeah, I was looking for original pictures of that. I um. That what you had was was that was as good or better than anything that that we could come up with. So oh, wow, well, right on. Sort of an odd like in motion. It's almost like a screenshot. Yeah, like you know from the, the video of of him, but uh, it works. Mm-hmm. Totally works. It's funny the photos on the back. One of them is from a different night altogether because he's wearing yes. like a pink jacket. 
Yeah, the pink jacket one, yeah. With this project specifically, you, you had mentioned that Billy gave is okay. Is that when you decide you want to pursue something like this or another unreleased project, is that usually step one before mm-hmm. you go oh, yeah. deep? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's got to uh, he's got to give it the okay. To your recollection, was it a pretty quick go for it? It was uh, quicker than an unreleased, unknown show would have been. Yeah, I think that you know he acknowledges this as a classic and un- sort of was able to understand immediately what it was we wanted to do, rather than like remember that show <laughs> in you know Dusseldorf right. in nineteen eighty six. That was a one. Oh man, we'd love it. It's like, what? What are you talking about? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, you know, it was the same thing with Yankee Stadium. You know, I think he remembered that that was filmed mm-hmm. in a sort of big, giant way. And, mm-hmm. you know, so it was exciting to go back and get back into that. So, um, you know, same with Russia, same with the more well-known things. And, of course, the challenge there is for people like us. Mm-hmm. It's like we want the less-known things. Right. I think that there's a, there's a lot out there to get to to, to sink your teeth into. I'm thinking, the, you know, Great American Music Hall and, uh, and, and the extended Yankee Stadium. Has there been any sort of shift in that mentality? Because we all know Billy's very, I put it out on record the way I want you to hear it, and that's that. But I'm curious if it's if the conversations have changed a little now that the response is coming in. No, it's it's still always one thing at a time. I don't think there will be a open the floodgates and, you know, this is all just going to start <laughs> happening. But as you find things, all you can do is say, hey, do you remember this? And I think this would be cool or like, Hey, I've got a sample of this. <laughs> mm-hmm. You want to hear more of it or, but I do think that, you know, each, each of his tours, each of the sort of eras is certainly well worth exploring mm-hmm. and having something out there that represents it mm-hmm. for people. All right, John, thanks so much. It's always a treat to talk with you. He's another member of the camp that's been a big supporter of what we're doing. So always a pleasure to talk through the process and nerd out about the Billy Joel archives. And we've got some more conversation that lived a little outside of the box set talk that you should be hearing shortly down the road as well. So uh, more to come from John Jackson. But thank you again. And now let's go to the audio of our unboxing with our good friend Edward O'Dowd. All right, here we are. Another uh, crisp autumn day, another Billy Joel re-release. This time we're looking at the Vinyl Collection Volume 2. Just, uh, well, similar to the release two years ago, this comprises his albums from the 80s and 90s uh, and dips into the 2000s, technically. And it also has a special treat. We're finally getting the full uh, deluxe re-release of Live from Long Island. And here it is release day. We've got our copy here. Well, Michael has his specifically. And since Michael's got some of his own artifacts uh, in the box, we're going to let him do the honors and do the uh, actual opening. As you can see, the shrink wrap is still on. The hype sticker is still there. And the hype sticker will remain because it is a Michael uh, collector's item. So that that will be there forever. (laughs) We are also very, very fortunate to have Edward O'Dowd, the art director for both the Vinyl Collection Volume 1 and 2. So before we open it, Edward, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about putting this one together? What was the process like this time around? What was it like compared to uh, Volume 1? 
the biggest inherent difference was the pandemic. The world as we knew it was struggling getting things manufactured, getting packages to one another, being in the same room. And so on the heels of volume one, Sony Legacy was really keen to start volume two. So we had enormous hurdles getting things done collectively, but far apart. And then kind of switching to online and being able to look at archives that were uploaded and all that kind of stuff. Really, the workflow kind of was similar to as if you know we were in office. What I found really interesting about this project was that there was, in a sense, certain periods, less stuff to choose from um, for some of the 80s titles, um, which was interesting because for all of the early stuff, we, I, I felt like we had tons and tons of photography. So it was an interesting situation where we kind of had to really maybe you know, look a bit outside of just the Sony archives and stuff like that. And this time around, the collectors like Michael, and I want to name check all of these people later, um, but there were six people who, without their help and support, this project would not have been visually what it, what it became because we had rich, rich ephemera to work with, really interesting items. And I spent a lot of time visiting people in person, collecting things, photographing things, you know, so it was a really amazing research, you know, process as well this time. The two collectors that live in New Jersey, where I live, it was just mask up. People were willing to let me come into their homes and we kept a social distance and we looked at things and they would move and I'd go in and photograph. <laughs> How is it uh, different from the first time? Did you feel like you had a template to work with or was it a really new experience? I definitely felt in, in the sense of a template that there was one because of a volume one, mm -hmm. the way the book is structured with the lyrics and the, the liner notes and how the photos fall, you know, it all kind of was basically along the same lines as volume one. So that structure made it easier for me. But I think if anything, the challenge this time was how to fit it all. Because with the ephemera, there was so much. I could have included another 10 pages of just ephemera. You know, Michael was, was instrumental in helping me check a lot of stuff. Like, what year is this? Where is this from? I'd find things and, and really not be able to unearth what they were. And at the last minute, Michael, if you want to name Jenny. Jenny Norderby, who's a good friend of ours and friend of the podcast. She is a big collector, especially in international print media. So magazines, newspapers, articles, things like that. And a lot of these have very unique imagery and super unique articles in the book, which we'll get into shortly it creates a nice visual texture behind a lot of the content. Edward, you gave me a call saying, hey, do you know anybody? I said, well, not only do I know somebody, but I know someone who I can get on the phone with you in about two days. Such a huge help. And it was at the very tail end. There was a fair amount of stuff that we had, but again, it was period, period specific. So if we needed something sure. that kind of fit into the Stormfront era and didn't have that, but we had Innocent Man, we wanted to kind of give an equal view to each album. That's really nice to see because commercially in their day, you know, An Innocent Man was a blockbuster, but The Bridge not quite as much. So to be able to really tell a broader story for every album, uh, I really appreciated that in this. All right. Well, that seems like a good time now to do the uh, the unveiling here. And so before we uh, even get the shrink wrap open here, I'm always a big fan of the hype stickers. And we have Billy Joel, The Vinyl Collection, Volume 2, 11 LP box set. All albums remastered for vinyl in 2023. 
Glass Houses, The Nylon Curtain, An Innocent Man, The Bridge, Stormfront, River of Dreams, Fantasies and Delusions, First Time on Vinyl, and the first time audio release of Live from Long Island, three LPs, plus a 60-page booklet with highlights from Billy Joel's later recording career. Is the coloring a bit kind of reversed from volume one? Was it black with some red in it? That's right. Trying to keep some sort of similarities, but also make them really different. We worked really hard on that front cover turntable to ensure that it had more of a late 80s, 90s feel rather than the first volume, which had more of a 70s. And then you had mentioned how it's reflected as well in the update to the label on the center of the box here, which was the 90s style Columbia Mm -hmm. vinyl here. That was another historical find where looking through archives and figuring out exactly when did Columbia change their labels. And this is one thing that I always tell people, uh, and which I did with volume one, it's something that you have to feel and see with your naked eye to get the full effect in it. Can you speak a little bit to some of the different ink and the textures of the printing? We've got some really nice stock to begin with, really nice paper. Mm. And then, you know, sort of with a uh, spot varnish on the album covers on the front of the book. It seems like you've found photos that are very close to ones we've seen, but are alternates, like perhaps not the ones that, that have been out there the whole time. So it's, it's familiar, but it's definitely new. Yeah, when going through a lot of these old shoots, I definitely tried to, you know, sort of source things that were even just a little bit unusual. This spread I love because we got to use the two film strips from Sometimes a Fantasy on the right there. Jeff Schock had given me those years ago, and I've been holding them, just waiting, (laughs) waiting. (laughs) There's going to be the project just for it. They're so awesome. They're scanned nice and high res. Like you see that and you just, I hear the song starting up in my head. This is the uh, 12-inch single for Fantasy and Lena. Everything is written in Billy's handwriting. So the Columbia logo, Mm -hmm. all the credit text, stereo, the catalog number, that's all his handwriting. Everything, everything but the family productions logo is is his. Right. And I like I like the combination of different international versus domestic singles. Yeah, there's a treasure trove of those. I mean, it's it's really it's incredible how many languages these singles contain. This section here underneath each large album cover is Billy giving his thoughts on each album, correct? So that was something that we kept from volume one as well, where, you know, his his notes were handled the mm-hmm. same way, which I think is really important to give this, you know, kind of more personal overview. Yeah. So for a lot of the titles, the, the earlier ones, I was able to source cassettes and then those rupier rags too. Rupier rags were from uh, Paul Fierro, who seems to have a bunch You'll see as we go through the book, like as he becomes like a bigger and bigger star, the mm-hmm. promo items that that started to come like more and more and different. You know what I mean? By the time oh, we yeah. get to this is the time, it's like there's a watch, there's a clock, <laughs> there's like bigger promos. It's so interesting because I never saw these things. Was it a different experience putting this book together? Because each album, it occurs to me, was so different. Whereas, you know, the 70s, that run of turnstiles through 52nd Street, stylistically were very similar. But it's like a different turn every two years with Billy in the 80s. I think by doing this kind of collage style throughout, that sort of equalized everything. Mm -hmm. So even if the sort of visual styles were completely different from one another, it still has some cohesion because of the the scrapbook quality to it. But see, when you get, if you go to the top now, you'll see the clock I was talking about with the piano. You know, so could you imagine getting that on your desk? <laughs> yeah, Like this incredible ceramic clock you know, that says Billy Joel <laughs> in the shape of a piano. 
red velvet flocked box. It's so awesome. Michael's going on eBay right now looking for it. See if he... <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say set up a safe search for see if that baby turns up. <laughs> well, you have to go to Paul Fierro's house. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, and there's the, uh, this is the time. Watch over here too. Yeah. <laughs> Little Casio. This is the time. Yeah. <laughs> this is great. I can't recall, but are the essays longer this time around, or did they go in on, onto the second page last time? I think the last time that there were some that did, but not all. But I feel mm. like with these, it's probably most, if not all, go onto the second yeah. page. They um, seem a little more in depth from him, which I was totally fine with them. Like more background, that's awesome. More to learn and read. Right. Caught him on a good day. Yeah. yeah. All right, nerdy design question. Did you at any point have to go back and ask him if he could change a word or two so you could you could justify the lines better? Or were you able to? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. We found ways to make it all work. So and I feel like this era, we start to see a lot more like cool um, laminates, tour laminates and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, this has got like some foil embossing uh, in there. A nice shield. So a lot of the other ones from prior to this, I've acquired that that are in here. But this one is actually a show I was at. That's my actual seat. And then Fantasies and Delusions. So, Michael, I'm going to let you tell the story of the cover for this. Jack and I had had Hyung Ki on the podcast a few years ago to talk about working with Billy and talk about the record. Prior to our interview with him, uh, his team you know, reached out to us just with a few bullet points of some things that they're working on. And he did a mention of saying, you know, I know when this came out, he was going by the name Richard. but from shortly after that through now, he's been going by his given first name, Hyung Ki. So if you could just please refer to him as that, as you're talking about him or as you're talking with him as well. So we, we took that note into mind when we did the interview. Fast forward a year or two uh, when uh, Edward's working on this and we were just kind of going back and forth about some details. It just popped into my head. I said, well, okay, Fantasies is going to be on here. Which name are you using? <laughs> yeah, and then I I told you the story, and uh, and you're like, wow, that's an interesting question. Let's uh, let me uh, run it up the flagpole and see what they want to do. Sure enough, uh, the change was made, and so it now is uh, listed as Hyung Ki on the front cover. He's honored by his proper first name, which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Right? Because I noticed he also even went as far as to changing it on the cover that's on his website. I'm like, okay, if he's altering the cover over there, I'm like, this would be something important to him, I would think. And then. Here we go. <laughs> Everybody's been waiting. What for. you've all been waiting for, folks, it's finally here. Live from Long Island. They've been listening to our pleas and cries and complaints. It's finally here, guys. The full yep. show. On three records. Jack and I have had the opportunity to uh, take a spin through it, and it sounds full and big and modern, but it still has all the characteristics of the original. I give it an A plus. Yeah. It's a really well done. Yeah, it's it's clear and it sounds organic too. It's it's a great balance. And that lovely shot to close the uh, to close the book with that image of Billy walking on the dock. Gretchen Brennison uh, sourced that image and came forward with it and said, "I think this would be really nice to include." And I said, "I think it would be even nice to make to make it the closing statement." Yeah, it's a really nice shot. And I believe this is the nylon curtain shoot as well. Yeah, very nice. And then you have everyone's credits here on the back. Let's call you guys out. You want to read that line to the audience? A special thanks to Michael Grosvenor, Eric Fellin, Paul Fierro, Liz Weingart, and Jenny Nordeby for memorabilia and artifacts from their personal collections. Thank you, each and every one of you. 
this is a thing that comes up all the time working with um, musicians on music packaging. It does not matter what echelon, what level, everybody who has a history has yeah. ephemera out there and press and oh, stuff sure. like that. It's been incredible sourcing things for different artists at different levels. The one thing I noticed, especially with, you know, talking with uh, John Jackson and, and Steve Cohen throughout much of Billy's active career, they were just all in it doing the gig. No one was thinking long ball of like, you know, we should tuck away these things, you know, keep track of all the little things that come out over the years. We were talking with John Jackson a week or two ago. He mentioned how sometimes the album cover photo or the, the negative, those are sometimes the ones in the worst condition, I guess, because they've been messed with and reproduced so much. So was there a challenge um, restoring any of these in particular? All the restoration for the outer jackets was done years ago. My, with a retoucher oh, and myself art directing. Um, mm -hmm. Because what we did for the CD box set to sort of save time and money was we scanned everything really large. This is all from original scanning old albums and restoration. Mm -hmm. So there weren't any, any huge challenges this time because a lot of that work had been done. Uh -huh. But say in a case like Fantasies and Delusions, we started new, we started fresh using digital files and oh, okay. I kind of pulled the digital files apart and reassembled as a larger surface. All the imagery inside and outside is nice and clear. It looks fantastic. And some of these titles are also really interesting to me because you know I've had the same boss at Sony for all mm -hmm. the years that I've worked with them. You know, in terms of the, the art department, and oh, he's sure. responsible for designing a lot of these covers. Oh, so okay. it's really impressive, you know, to look at this history and you know, like and be able to talk to him about it. You know. Mm. This back cover would have been, I imagine, fairly easy to recreate just because of locking on the <laughs> on the font. Once I match the typeface, you know what I mean? Yeah, but absolutely. you'd be surprised at how many mutations of Helvetica there are. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I've I've mentioned this to Jack before. It's you know up up through an innocent man at this point. Every album originally, you know, had that Family Productions logo on it with the deal with with Artie Rip, and it's it's it's. It's fascinating to see because, you know, once the deal expired, the logos got to come off. So it's interesting seeing some of these records without that logo on it anymore. I don't really know the backstory to that, but it's something that uh, when I started working with Jeff Schock, he would start giving direction, you know, along those lines of like, we're not using that logo or, you know, mm. which also right, surprised sure. me because I had noticed so many reissues with the logo left on. Yeah, I noticed that too. At one time, I tried to restore it, and I could I could never even get close because it's so many generations. I think that it was probably a photocopy to begin with anyway, to be honest. The original Family Productions logo was an outline, like on their original releases. Everything that got used on all the Columbia releases, like you said, are like looked like they were just photocopied masters of the logo. So years ago, I tried to kind of get in there an illustrator and retrain. You know, I'm like, there's really nothing here. All right. We are now veering right. into somewhat uncharted territory, at least for a lot of us, which would be Stormfront on Uncharted Lava. waters. <laughs> <laughs> uncharted storm. Yeah. I was always fascinated with the front cover of this. Again, mm. from like, you know, speaking with Chris's Stop Chalk. And this is a conversation we haven't had yet, but I just, I want to know how they made that cover yeah. because it's so pre-Photoshop. And so this billowing custom flag, like the flag had to have been fabricated. The setup must have been live. 
and shock. You know what I mean? It's just something we don't right. even think about anymore. How many are in that sequence of photos? Right. And this was the right. one, you know? Yeah. 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 And I don't know if yeah. you ever saw how old retouchers would work. It's directly to the photograph. They do stuff with sort of like watercolor, you know, transparent watercolor, but things are often removed by scraping the emulsion off the photo. Like if there was a blemish and the skin was mainly white, you, you would actually scrape that off the emulsion, you know, no kidding. kind of like sand it down a little bit. I had the advantage of seeing the, like all these guys that did that type of work. It was a specialty as I was coming onto the design scene in the early nineties as a 20 something, I got to work with these guys and actually see that the technique unsurpassed. Yeah. Yeah, it's such a different craft when you had to do it physically, and especially when you were down to a photo and you can't control Z on that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and now River of Dreams, now granted there was a Friday music reissue a few years ago, but when it originally came out in 1993, there was no U.S. vinyl pressing. So everything else was over, everything for this record vinyl-wise was overseas. This cover looks great big. I mean, the version Christy painted was huge. Oh, was it? It was at least like double the size, if not bigger. And similar to uh, the uh, back of the CD booklet, if you recall, Jack. Yeah. Similar style with the sky and the stars and the track listing. This may have been one of the cases where, because it wasn't on vinyl, right? So we didn't have certain words, side one, side two. Those were comprised from other letter forms in that stack of song titles. You kind of compiled the lettering together for these from the original lettering. Yeah. And sometimes having to create a new letter. Also on glass houses, it, it was proposed for the, the legal copy at the bottom on the back to just be set in, you know, Helvetica or something like that. And I was like, but my copy that I got when I was a kid, right. it's in his hand. You know, I actually sat with a big piece of tracing paper, my glasses and kind of like kept A being against the, you know, and I created it really wanted to make sure like we had that authenticity it fits with everything you like it wouldn't jump out to you that that's new of the different vinyl and cd versions i have believe it or not there's at least two different ways billy joel and river of dreams were written but both in hand lettering yeah both similar but very different but still different yeah oh yeah so here we have uh the new should be the new label there it is yep and so, yeah, if you've got like an Alice in Chains record or a Mariah Carey record from the mid-90s or a lot of that kind of stuff from like 92 on forward, this is what you're going to be seeing on those original records. I appreciate that you uh, matched the era of the original album, even though this never came out on vinyl there. This was very much John Jackson's call. He came to the, you know, to the table with that and it was like a, he, he really wanted to see that. We worked, did a lot of... Um, research and comping, you know, just to make sure that everything was accurate. All right, next up, All for right. the first time on vinyl, folks. We are officially on oh, the other side of the flagpole in Mario. This is new to vinyl. <laughs> with there never being a vinyl reference, what was your process with this one? The CD files, the digital files existed, but they weren't, they were incomplete, but I was able to source enough from them and then sort of work on making them look better high res. Like the, the typography could all be replaced, but that border, the more filigree items, you know, those were the only ones that existed. A lot of retouching and doctoring and color matching to make sure we got the same look and feel as the original. And yeah. the inner sleeve for that that you're holding is, um, that's sort of custom and new, you know, in that we 
use the photos large. It was a great opportunity for these great photos that I feel like weren't really seen that much. And then, of course, you have things, you know, that go along with this, like where the original art, right, like the front cover is square, but the back cover is rectangular. So the border, you know, had to be sort of like cut and spliced together to make a square. Because, yeah, it filled out the, the tray card. That's right. So on this one, we are going to see a, a very different LP label. Yes. Mm-hmm. And if you have a CBS classical release from the 70s, you'll, you'll recognize some of the old Columbia classical stuff here. It's like a greenish gray with orange. Yeah. yeah. That was a fun one to do because I had to you know, source an old CBS masterworks. And that, you know the, the old Columbia stuff, we have that. We've been using that stuff for years, but this was a whole yeah. new can of worms. Yeah. And the piece here, last but certainly not least, the one that people <laughs> thought would never happen. But we are, have proof tonight that it's here. It's real and it's spectacular. <laughs> so tell us about this one. I, I love that you went with the Laserdisc, the original video and Laserdisc design. So that was by request. That was you know, per, per John Jackson. Was that the Billy Joel office, you know, like collectively was interested in pursuing this as the front cover. So Michael, you graciously scanned that image <laughs> for me, which I restored from scratch um, with everything else. So I matched all the typography, you know, so created all fresh, fresh new graphics that yeah. mimic the original. And we got the back, which mimics that as well. And it's a triple LP. So everything's in a, uh, it's a, like I said, it's a nice dirty sleeve, but all the records are tucked into the sleeve like that. And then here we have the back, which again, follows closely the laser disc, how that came together. But now we've got the full track listing over three LPs. And let me, so you got the four photos that were on the back, five photos. And then you have the uh, track listing and then production and band credits. And again, with this one recorded in 82, you know, released on HBO in 83, 84. And we've got the classic 70s and 80s label here to match. The audio is meticulously worked on. What I love about this is there is a lot of banter that we've never heard before as well. You know, the Yankee Stadium vinyl release was a was a different animal and had a different end game. So it was song to song to song to song. This is presented largely how the concert went. So you'll have when you put on the side that starts with scenes from an Italian restaurant, the song itself doesn't start for a minute and a half because there's joking around and, yeah, you know, what you would expect from a Billy show. But they really took a lot of care with the audio mix, like Edward, you said, and they uh, it feels like the original show in so many ways. It's not a Jim Boyer mix. It's certainly some modern mixing techniques, but it feels organic. It feels live. It feels real. And it doesn't take away, you know, all the characteristics of the original are still intact. Top to bottom, a really enjoyable experience listening to this. Edward, it was a treat to have you on once again. I did not know until we started that he had not opened his copy yet. As we were unboxing the box set, this was also Edward's first time seeing the finished product. So it was a real treat to not only talk through it with him, but to get his initial reactions as he's seeing things on camera here for the first time. Good times. I say we put an end to this episode now because I'm excited. I want to put my copy on the turntable. And it's getting pretty late here on the East Coast. So 
before the neighbors get too mad at me. <laughs> That's right. I think I'm going to go through the same order that it is in the box set. So I'm going to kick it off with Glass Houses, go through Fantasies and Delusions, and finish it off with an amazing bonus live from Long Island. I'm so excited about that. You know what I think I'm going to do? I'm going to take advantage of the medium, and I think I'm going to do sides. Like one side of Glass Houses, one side of Stormfront, one side of this, one side of that. Interesting. I'm going to do it that way, just for the first time, you know what I mean? Okay. And then uh, maybe this weekend, you know, now it's getting a little chilly. I'll sit down in my record player with like a uh, a nice whiskey, and I'll sit there and listen to Fantasies and Delusions like I'm like I'm uh, high society. Get yourself a, a pipe. Hoity-toity. I might get a pipe. Yeah, I was just about to yeah. say, pipe. At least a sweater with Life some sweater. leather patches on the elbows. Yeah, yeah. And my fuzzy bear slippers, just to... <laughs> <laughs> just to top it off just to bring you back to earth a little bit i'm still me you know that's right <laughs> but hey while we're listening to ours you listen to yours and when you're done doing that uh let us know what you think glasshouses podcast at gmail.com or find us on the socials facebook x and instagram do those early to mid 80s records sound just as good as you remember them uh, is this the first time you're hearing stormfront river and river of dreams on record let alone fantasies and delusions have you given Fantasies and Delusions a good close listen over the last 20 years before this record? I'll be honest with you. I haven't listened to it in a long time. I'm yeah. really looking forward to it. And as John Jackson says, I'm looking forward to getting that 15 to 20 minute chunk of it. It gives you a, a much different experience when it breaks it up into that way. It breaks it up into sides and you know the process of getting up, turning over the record. It, it's a whole new experience. And so to have that on Fantasies for the very first time. And, and just to hear, you know, the live recording like this for the first time, there's a lot to like here. And, you know, I know it's a, a little higher price point than the last one, but you're getting another extra couple records than the previous one. Yeah. I, I'd be saying this if I wasn't involved in it. It looks great. It sounds great. Having the later records on vinyl again and having Live from Long Island, which I know we've all been clamoring for forever, it's worth the price of admission alone. So this is a real treat. If you're not able to, you're not ready yet, it's worth setting aside a couple bucks a month until you're ready to pick this up because this is a uh, really well done set all around. It's music we've all heard a whole bunch of times and it's music a lot of us have on record for the most part anyway. But you know, even with the first box set, I was excited, and I'm not half the collector Michael is. I'm not that much into like having that many physical copies of things. And, you know, I'll just stream if I want to. And, you know, I, I like collecting records when I find them. But what I really dug about this was just getting a new copy of Turnstiles, a new copy of Street Life Serenade, especially. You put on new ears just in a little way. Yeah. Even though you've heard it before, even though maybe you've heard it on record, it's just something about it's a slightly different package. Yeah, You know, it's slightly different this or that. It's sitting down with the booklet, whatever it is. It puts it in a new light. It's very enjoyable that way. And so me, at least, you know, once I'm looking forward to, to doing that again, looking forward to like a new version, so to speak, of Glass Houses. Yeah. And especially a new version of uh, River of Dreams. Yeah, I found that on 45 the other day, by the way. I tell you that? Oh, no. Very yeah, nice. Yeah, I, uh, I found it on, uh, yeah, on vinyl. Awesome. But uh, certainly not the whole album, so. Yeah. This would be the first time hearing Shades of Gray. <laughs> you know, Oh, yeah, those cream big, uh, ginger baker drums at the beginning. And of course, live from Long Island. It's an outlier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. And uh, what a what a perfect choice with a release like that that's so near and dear and that so many of us hold with such esteem. You know, the original one was mixed by Jim Boyer and it was mixed much like a Billy Joel record. Jim mixed those classic albums from the late 70s through the 80s, up until Stormfront. So it's such a great sounding original release. You know, a lot of people are always nervous of like, okay, 
is remixed from the ground up, you know, are they going to lose all of the charm and all of the feel and the organicness of the original? And I'm here to tell you, it hasn't lost any of it. It sounds really great. It sounds big and full and strong like a new mix would, but it still retains that energy and a lot of that sound from the original release, but it's given a whole new life. I'm so happy with it. And look, I swear to God, we're not the shills we sound like right now. Like we wouldn't say if it wasn't true. There's been releases recently that we've had critiques of. Certainly. You went out once to blow smoke, man. So far, it's like at least pretty cool looking. So, uh, oh, uh, we were so excited. I didn't even mention uh, that you can also find us uh, on our Discord server. Yep. Where you can uh, discuss all this in real time with us, along with uh, any other music we feel like talking about that week, be it uh, some Latin music, Steve Miller, The Beatles, Metallica. It's a lot of fun. Um, you know, I, I've said this before, I'll say it again. I don't get on there as much as I want, and I've been a little better about it lately. It's a great thing to pop in, you know, see what everybody's up to. Got a nice community going there. You'll find the invite for that in the show notes. Drop us a line. Let us know what you think of the box set. I mean, I don't know. At some point before the end of this year, we'll read some of your letters again. I swear to God, we read them all. We do, and we try to get back to everybody. The the tricky thing is sometimes with reading them on the air lately is um, Jack and I are across the country from each other, as you all know, and we both seemingly have uh very busy lives but you know trust us this is not going to impact the podcast you know we're all full steam ahead um and it's going great however we tend to batch things out sometimes so you know we may record an episode tomorrow that comes out in three months if it's something that's a little more evergreen so it's sometimes it's hard to read you know read an email on an episode that's going to be out in three months it's it's not always easy yeah but we do it when we can and we try to get back to everybody. But your comments and your emails are amazing. We love hearing your stories and your feedback. You know, you're all a part of this podcast and we're super grateful for that. As we near our hundred episodes, this is great. And it's, it's been fun speaking with everybody, be it people we've interviewed, uh, people we've had on, you know, people we've had on the podcast, people we talked to in the Discord server, people we've chatted with via email, on Facebook, wherever else. Join us for another hundred or two or three or four hundred i don't know that's, that's we'll right keep going for busy people we apparently have no lives so you know just keep on <laughs> <laughs> keep on keeping on that's right all right let's go drop the needle we'll see you next time we'll see you soon everyone thanks <laughs>